This podcast does not provide medical nor legal advice. Please listen to the complete disclosure at the end of the recording. Hello, possums. Oh? Since Dame Edna has died, I'm stealing her line. Hmm. And welcome to Everyone Dies, the podcast where we talk about serious illness, dying, death, and bereavement. I'm Marianne Matzo, a nurse practitioner, and I use my experience from working as a nurse for 45 years to help answer your questions about what happens at the end of life. And I'm Charlie Navarrete, an actor in New York City, asking you, when was the last time you updated your will? You have a will, don't you? The more your friends and family know, the better prepared they will be to make difficult decisions for you. So please relax, get yourself something to eat and drink, and thank you for spending the next hour with Charlie and me as we talk about people whose influential lives were not published in the New York Times obituaries. And I have a feeling that two more of those people will be Charlie and I. <laughs> in the first half, I have our recipe of the week and a lot of schmaltz. In the second half, Charlie talks about obituaries in the New York Times and their feature about overlooked obituaries. And in our third half, we have a story about digital memories. So, Charlie, our recipe this week is about mm-hmm. chicken schmaltz. Schmaltz? And you just schmaltz. Is you got to love the Yiddish language. Oh, I thought it was it's Irish. Got, okay, like, fine. Yiddish. Got it. Okay. Yiddish, Irish, I mean, you know, tomato, tomato. Smaltz is a term for rendered or melted chicken or goose fat. Our recipe is a simple and basic recipe for rendering chicken fat to later use in Jewish or other cooking or even as a delicious spread for crackers or bread. Easy basic chicken schmaltz takes little time to make and can last in the refrigerator for a long time and be used to add a little extra delicious greasiness to recipes that require it. Now, schmaltz is a traditional part of Eastern European or Ashkenazi Jewish cuisine and is used as a cooking fat in a variety of dairy-free foods, especially if one is keeping kosher. The term schmaltz is derived from the German verb meaning to melt. Today, the term is commonly used in English when referring to chicken fat. Now, when you hear the term not being used in reference to food, know that it's Yiddish slang to mean a kind of mushy sentimentality. You know, the kind of thing that Charlie and I have going. Yes. Schmaltz Schmaltz was introduced in the U.S. by Eastern European Yiddish-speaking Jews when they ran from European anti-Semitism and immigrated, bringing their cuisine with them. Now, part two of our recipe is to take the schmaltz and make schmaltz mashed potatoes. Mm. I mean, what an incredible comfort food to bring to your next funeral lunch. So please go to our webpage for the recipe for schmaltz and schmaltz mashed potatoes and all the additional resources for this program. As always, your tax-deductible donations are welcome so that we can continue to offer you quality program. Thank you in advance for making your donation at www.everyonedies.org. That's www.everyonedies.org. the number one, dies.org. So, Charlie, how are you? Well, um, uh, um, feeling schmaltzy. 
Yes, I'm feeling warm and cuddly. I I don't know why. But um, actually, um, last night I went to see uh, um, a play called Goodnight Oscar. Um, this was about um, Oscar Levant, who was just, just a, a prodigy on the piano and also schizophrenic. And he would just say anything that, that came to mind. But remember, this was the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s, and you really couldn't do that on TV, but he didn't care. I mean, he would say things like, um, you know, Doris Day always had this image of being sweet and pure and innocent. And Levant famously Till she <laughs> said, hooked up with uh, <laughs> Burt Reynolds, but that kind of ruined it. Um, but even before that, I mean, people were just praising her. And on live TV, he said, Doris Day, oh, I remember her before she was a virgin, which <laughs> which was just horrifying at the time. But Levant did things like this. Um, so Sean Hayes, you know, who, you know, from Will and Grace. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, plays Oscar Lament. You you will not recognize him at all. But the thing of it is, with the schizophrenia, he was always comparing himself to the great George Gershwin. And George Gershwin was in his head, and then an actor comes out, you know, playing Gershwin. And then at one point, um, and this, this did happen on Jack Parr show, uh, you know, Levant sat down and played Rhapsody in Blue. Um, Sean Hayes has been playing piano since he was a little kid. I mean, he's he's absolutely wonderful on the piano. Well, he played like half of Rhapsody in Blue, but Marianne, not not in the traditional way. Um, I guess this is the way Oscar Levant played it, and they were just just the rhythms and the tempos just changed throughout. It wasn't just hmm. one. I, I don't even know how to describe it, but it was just, it just stopped the show. When he stopped playing, it, it, people just jumped to their feet. I've never heard it like that before. Wow. This will, I, you know, I'm, I'll probably go back just and sit through the whole damn play again, just for that 10 minute interlude of him playing that song. I, I, I Real, I, I don't have the words. It it is one of, one of the, yeah. This is one of the times you know, a few times this this will stay with me, like till I yeah. drop dead, or till I lose my memory. Um, yeah, it's whichever just, comes first. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just spectacular. And, and then uh, you know, to to celebrate, I walked to the legendary Algonquin Hotel, and had a Dorothy uh, Parker. Mm -hmm. uh, Martini. Okay, two. Nice. Yeah, it was really... <laughs> Only two. Yeah. Well, there, then I had one. Well, never mind. Uh, yeah, so it was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, was a, it was a magical night at uh, uh, yeah, in the theater. It really, really was. So... Uh, well, I'll have to put that on our list of... Uh, we haven't been to New York since... Oh, yeah, one... We, we were there right before COVID shut everything right, down, yeah. like right before. Right, so about three, yeah, a little over three and a half years. Yeah, and we saw the Tina Turner Oh, musical. Tina. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, as we're recording this, uh, Tina died, what, two days ago now? It's, yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. So, and speaking of that, with the New York Times. I bet she made it in the New York Times. Um, yeah. She made it in many periodicals. And since uh, 1851, obituaries in the New York Times have been dominated by white men. Quel surprise. What follows is a compilation of articles explaining the policies and processes on how the New York Times decides who gets an obituary and how obits have now become more inclusive. Obituary editor William McDonald reports, some 155,000 people die between each day's print version of the New York Times and the next, enough to fill Yankee Stadium three times over. On average, we publish obituaries on about three of them. Wow. We're definitely not getting in. Says you. Never say never. The Times focuses on people who made a difference on a large stage. If you made news in life, chances are your death is news too. The intent is not to honor the dead, but rather to only report the deaths and to sum up lives, illuminating why those lives were significant. So why not more women and people of color on the obituary pages? For that matter, why not more openly gay people or transgender people? The larger answer, as William McDonald explains, because relatively few of them were allowed to make such a mark in society in their own time. Universities may have barred them. Businesses and political parties may have shut them out. The tables of power were crowded with white men. There were few seats for anyone else. There were, of course, women who crashed glass ceilings, blacks and Native Americans, and other. There were, of course, women who crashed glass ceilings, blacks and Native Americans, and people of Asian heritage who pushed through white-only barriers. And some of their stories have been told in the obituary pages over many decades. Mr. McDonald imagines that their stories will be increasingly framed, not by broken barriers, but simply by what they built unencumbered by discrimination. To that end, Overlooked is a new collection of obituaries for women and others who never got them, a history project recalling the lives of those who were left out of the Times' obit pages. The Times is acknowledging that many worthy subjects were skipped for generations for whatever reasons and that they would be prime candidates for an obit in the Times today because they fit a broader standard of significance and impact and offer compelling stories, like Nella Larson. Ms. Larson was a literary star during the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s and 30s. Her dramatic novels about black middle-class families and the debilitating pressures of race inspired meaningful conversations. She was the first African-American woman to be admitted to the library school of the New York Public Library. She was successful as an author and later worked in hospitals. She withdrew from the limelight and died alone in 1964. Her body was found days later in her apartment, and there was little news coverage of her death. Despite her success, Ms. Larson did not get an obituary in the New York Times. Amisha Padnani, digital editor on the obituary desk, started developing the idea for the series in early 2017. While researching an obit for a woman in tennis, Ms. Padnani stumbled upon a website crediting Mary Ewing Outerbridge with introducing tennis to America. 
There was no Times obituary when she died in 1886. After that, any time Omisha came across an interesting person who had died years before, she searched the Time archives for an obit. Those who didn't get one were not, surprisingly, largely women and people of color. She started talking about her research with colleagues, friends, and relatives, and they began sending her names of dozens of fascinating people, such as a golfer who died without ever knowing that she was the first American woman to win an Olympic championship, and Ms. Larson. Hmm. More surprising were the blatant omissions of those who had achieved the measure of fame in their lifetime, like the poet Sylvia Plath, the writer Charlotte Bronte, and photographer Diane Arbus. Because many of the subjects they wrote about died long ago, Ms. Padnani and fellow editor Jessica Benetto diverged from the traditional obituary style of announcing a person's death at the start of the article and encouraged writers to be creative with their storytelling. The first woman whose death was recorded in the New York Times was Abigail Lounsbury on October the 2nd, 1851. It was a notice of less than 50 words and refers Miss Lonsbury as the wife of Amos L. Lonsbury. It did not list the cause of death. Roughly 170 years later, only about a fifth of the subjects of obituaries have been women. Up through the 1970s, married women's obituaries were hidelined using the honorific Mrs. and their husband's name, as with Frances Stunkart, a New York University librarian whose obituary ran under the headline, Mrs. H.W. Stunkart, age for her husband, Horace. Even Frida Kahlo, who was identified in the headline of her 1953 obit as Diego Rivera's wife. While both Ms. Kahlo and Mr. Rivera, the Mexican muralist, were famous at the time, he was more famous. The six-paragraph article of Ms. Kahlo's mentioned, she's also a painter. <laughs> Her renown has since grown to surpass <laughs> Mr. Rivera's. Marianne, can you imagine this? Oh, by the way, he's also yeah. a painter. I, yeah. I, <laughs> she, she dabbles in watercolor. Yeah, there we are. <laughs> well, well, he dabbled in many women. Her sister. Yeah. The Boom! Yes, I said it. The uh, hard-hitting news, folks. The author of Jane Eyre, Emily Bronte's death in 1855, did not receive a mention in the Times. However, a half-century later, the Times did cover the death of the Reverend Arthur Bell Nichols. The headline? Charlotte Bronte's husband, dead. <gasps> now... The first overlooked death reported in the Times was about Ida Pfeiffer, a Viennese woman with one dream, to travel. In the 19th century, it was considered impossible for women to fulfill this wish. Regardless, she became famous for her globetrotting adventures. There was a notice, but no obit. Now the feature is introduced as... This article is part of Overlooked, a series of obituaries about remarkable people whose deaths, beginning in 1851, went unreported in the Times. With these obits, each obit opens with Overlooked 
no more. Here's a sampling of those overlooked no more. Ida B. Wells, born 1862, died 1931. A black woman took on racism in the Deep South with powerful reporting on lynchings, becoming one of the nation's most influential investigative reporters. Wee Jin, who died in 1907. A feminist poet and revolutionary who became a martyr known as China's Joan of Arc. Undeterred, she rose to become an early and fierce advocate for the liberation of Chinese women, defying prevailing Confucian gender and class norms by unbinding her feet and pursuing an education abroad with a passion for wine, swords, and bomb making. <laughs> <laughs> An- another craft I need to explore. Yes, there we are. It's, uh, yeah. um, Diane Arbus, who died in 1971. A photographer whose portraits have compelled or repelled generations of viewers. A daughter of privilege who spent much of her adult life documenting those on the outer limits of society. Her uncompromising portraits made her a groundbreaking figure in modern-day photography and an influence on three generations of photographers, though she is just as famous for her unconventional lifestyle and her suicide. Mm. Sylvia Plath, who died in 1963, a post-war poet unafraid to confront her own despair. As she grappled with the rejection of editors and her husband, the poet Ted Hughes, Plath spent her last months writing the poem that would secure her literary reputation. She stuffed the cracks of the doors and windows with cloths and tea towels. Then she turned on the gas at an address where the poet W.B. Yeats had once lived. She made sure to spare the children, leaving milk and bread for the two toddlers to find when they woke up. Henriette Lacks, who died in 1951. Her cancer cells were taken from her body without permission, as was the practice in 1951. Hella, the cell line named for her, has been at the core of the treatment for ailments like hemophilia, herpes, influenza, and leukemia. Today, the trillions of those cells, generated from a patch taken from her body, are labeled in university labs and biotechnology companies across the planet. Critical and medical advances. Neither she nor her family were compensated. Ms. Lax was buried in an unmarked grave. It was not customary for a woman to accompany a man to a construction site in the late 19th century, especially in petticoats. But when Washington A. Roebling, the chief engineer of the Brooklyn Bridge, fell ill in 1869, his wife, Emily Warren Roebling stepped in, learning engineering, managing, liaising, and politicking between city officials, workers, and her husband's bedside to see the world's first steel wire suspension bridge to completion. She was once described as a woman of strong character with an almost masculine intellect. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. Mrs. Roebling became the first person to cross the bridge, too, 
carrying a rooster with her. The story goes for good luck. Though I, I imagine after she crossed that, it was bad luck for the rooster. <laughs> Ada Lovelace. Oh, Pooh, wait a minute. No, shoot, sorry. Ada Lovelace, who died in 1851, a gifted mathematician who was now recognized as the first computer programmer. In 1843, at age 26, she wrote that an analytical engine could be programmed to not just calculate, but follow instructions and create as it weaves algebraic patterns. Her work was rediscovered in the mid-20th century, inspiring the Defense Department to name a programming language after her. Margaret Albert, who died in 1955. As I mentioned before, the first American woman to win an Olympic championship who died without ever knowing her achievement. And, and the, the reason for that, that, this is fascinating, Marianne, her, her and her mom um, were, you know, were vacationing. Um, they, uh, they, they liked to, uh, to play golf. They saw there were people playing golf. They signed up to play golf. This was, um, hang on a second. Um, when was the Olympics started? In 1898? I believe the first modern Olympics, like 1898. And, you know, her and her mother just stumbled upon this, uh, you know, golf game. They signed up, unaware it was the first Olympics, unaware it was a, um, you know, a contest. And, and she just golfed so well. She came in first place. Her mother came in seventh place. And that was it. <laughs> she, got, um, she got a ribbon, thought, oh, this is nice, and just moved on, unaware it was the first Olympics. And this was discovered, I forget, somebody was just doing some research and came across this and realized, holy shit, this, is the, this woman won the first, the first woman to win an Olympic. It was, and she didn't know. She never knew. No. Oh, my God. Yeah, isn't that crazy? It is. So, folks, in our show notes, we have a link you can use to nominate candidates for future overlooked obits. So, please keep that in mind. Um, and you'll take a look at that link. And if you have someone in mind, let the times know. That's great. Thanks for that, Charlie. Yeah. You know, a few weeks ago, we talked about cleaning up our collections, which I dubbed fall cleaning, so we don't leave a mess for our kids. And I mentioned that we also need to look at what we leave behind digitally and clean that up, too. Recently, Hannah Igber reported in the New York Times about the digital fragments we leave behind after death. And this is what she had to say. A few months after my stepfather died, I stumbled upon the Photos app of his old iPad. Jeff was not much of a photographer, and his photos proved it. As I flipped through, I saw images that mostly seemed to have been taken inadvertently, like close-ups of his feet. But (laughs) Jeff was gone, and I wanted more, so I kept looking. Among accidental screen grabs, I found photos he took while lying down. Was Jeff, our curmudgeon who spent his free time reading Civil War tomes, taking selfies in the hospital? 
I kept going. I fought image after image of my mother standing in their kitchen or bedroom posing in different outfits. She had presumably asked Jeff to photograph her so she could decide what to wear, and he obliged. The more I looked, the more I found sweet moments of my mother, images images of her petting Jeff's cats, which she insisted she did not care about, others of his cats snuggling up against her. I found a series of my mother painting wildflowers at their favorite lake in Maine. Jeff had captured her from every angle. Finding these photos, even the awkward feet ones, brought me comfort. The images were both predictable and surprising, reinforcing everything about who my stepfather was, while also showing me more. When older generations died, families would go through old photo albums and boxes of belongings. Now, when a loved one dies, we have so much more to pour over from their life. Text messages, emails, to-do lists, playlists, voicemails. These digital artifacts contain life spontaneity and chance. They show us details and small moments that we might have otherwise missed. The authors asked the New York Times readership to send in about the digital scraps that they had found after a loved one died. We'll share more of these bits in future shows, but we'd also love it if you sent your findings to us. Email them to me at marianne at everyonedies.org. It's M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E at everyonedies.org. Charlie? That's great. It's, um, yeah, and even, even if, like you said, you know, you call over, you know, hundreds of pictures and just different documents, you know, what, you know, what you were talking about before about, you know, downsizing and keeping, uh, you know, what are you going to keep? What are you not going to keep? Take pictures, folks. Um, put them all in one place and it'll help you declutter, but you will still have those memories. So with that. And then mm-hmm, the people, what? and then the people after you, your kids or whoever have to clean up your digital files. So, but that's easier than boxes and boxes of pictures. That's true. Please stay tuned for the continuing saga of Everyone Dies, and thank you for listening. This is Charlie Navarrete, and as this airs on June 2nd from the Star Trek film The Search for Spock, we've paid the price with our dearest blood. And I'm Marianne Matzo, and we'll see you next week. Remember, every day is a gift. This podcast does not provide medical advice. All discussion on this podcast, such as treatments, dosages, outcomes, charts, patient profiles, advice, messages, and any other discussion are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your primary care practitioner or other qualified health providers with any questions that you may have regarding your health. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard from this podcast. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. Everyone Dies does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, practitioners, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned in this podcast. Reliance on any information provided in this podcast by persons appearing on this podcast at the invitation of Everyone Dies or by other members is solely at your own risk.